I got my one fan here, that's for sure. Yes, all right. Sometimes I wish my mom could be here for those kind of moments. <laughs> it is so good to have you here this morning. And I just feel like um, just looking at each of you and saying, all right, all right, all right, all right. All right, you're here, you're accounted for, and you're looking fantastic on this another Easter morning. Um, so we do have a lot planned for you today, and I'm Pastor Joey, and it's my privilege to kind of walk you through the morning along with the other, everyone else that's shared with you and we'll be sharing with you. Um, this morning, it's my privilege in just a few moments uh, to talk to you out of 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, this is a very powerful passage. It's one of the premier resurrection passages in the New Testament. And the reason that it is, it's an ancient creed that Paul quotes um, within 20 years or so of the actual event of Jesus' life. And so the reason that's important is because there was no time for legendary accretion to occur in the Jesus story. It wasn't as if all of a sudden the followers of Jesus started telling a story about his resurrection and they just kept telling it and telling it and telling it. The legend kind of creeps into the story, and now we don't know what really happened. Well, that's not the way it went. Um, he quotes a very well-established Christian creed that got established within five to six years of the actual Christ event. And so it's very powerful. We'll see that. The second thing I'd like to accomplish today is we need to offer some clarification on a, a, a part of the Easter story that has been confusing and difficult um, for a number of people, maybe for a number of years even. Um, so one of the phrases that's in 1 Corinthians 15 is the fact that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. If we go to slide number 12 for me, and I'll be jumping around this morning in the presentation. Slide number 12, we read verses like, Matthew records for us, Matthew twelve forty. for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so the Jewish frame of reference um, is, lets us know that it could be any part of three days and three nights. And so there is a problem. This is the problem. You can't get three nights with a Friday crucifixion. Have you ever thought about that? Some people have. A lot of people have. And it's presented, um, shall I say, a, an obstacle or a challenge to their faith, especially in the resurrection. And so, contrary to a tidal wave of tradition, I'm going to offer uh, this morning an explanation that will help clarify that verse and that will help you rest a little easier um, with this part of the Easter story. And so um, my hope is to, to do that when we get to that phrase in the passage. And then the third thing I'd like to see us accomplish is just looking at um, the resurrection life, Easter life that comes to us as a result of um, what Christ has done. So just as he died, we die in him. Our old life is, we die in Christ, we're buried in Christ, we're raised in new life. And the latter part of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 through 11, we'll be dealing with verses 3 through 11, but 9 through 11 deal with 
how the resurrection practically got lived out in Paul's life. And so I'd like to accomplish that. And then uh, the fourth thing, we'll be doing communion together this morning. And I, I'm happy to report it is, it is uh, we are in a post-COVID world and frame of mind. The communion elements are back to the original Amish bread and grape juice. We're good. Yes. Yes. We know how to do communion right in the world. All right. We got Amish bread, not little dried out little pieces of cardboard. No, no, no. We, t- we go next level. All of you online, if you ever want to do communion and do it at our church and do it the right way, okay? You come to Stonesdale Community Church, we'll give you a, a little bit of Amish bread. And the most important is what it represents, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And so we'll give you an opportunity um, to do that today. And then the fifth thing I'd like to see happen is that we've got Baptism Day. And this is wonderful. There's probably eight or nine baptism baptisms that will be coming up and sharing just a brief word of testimony and they're going to be baptized immersed in the water representing all that Jesus was buried and raised they're going to be buried and raised on this Easter day and maybe you're here today and you know the Lord has spoken to you and said hey you're supposed to get baptized today well Lord I didn't come ready to get baptized today that's okay well what what am I going to go home in you're going to go home wet that's what you're going to do you go home wet You'll have your clothes on. We Believe me, we believe in that. We're going to keep your clothes on, okay? 100%, 100%. We don't want to make this too memorable, right, for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, you keep your clothes on. Praise God. You're just going to go home wet. So, and that's okay because um, we'll, probably most of you live pretty close, so it's going to be fine. And you probably noticed all the handkerchiefs. This is not in case I have a sneezing fit. Okay, these are for the candidates. Each, each candidate gets one. And so I've got them stacked up here. We're ready to, to, to do this today. Uh, when it comes to the resurrection, and I would just add, invite you, if you would, to pull up slide number two for me. Paul puts the resurrection on trial in 1 Corinthians 15. And we must render a verdict. Um, is the resurrection true or not? And when we look at the empty tomb and we look at the eyewitnesses and the changed lives of the people who were one way and like Paul, for example, he killed Christians and he hated Christianity and the story of Jesus and he does a 180 and he starts proclaiming the very message that he was trying to destroy and to cancel. And so we see that, and so it's based on these and a number of other material proofs and things. If we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we could see all these material proofs as well. Uh, the, the, The empty tomb and the stone rolled away and the grave clothes and so on and so forth. When we look at all that, the writers of the Bible, Paul is inviting you to consider the evidence. And to render a verdict. You are the foreman of your life jury. And then you are invited to render the verdict in light of what you see and know. And so before you render that verdict, it's my job to share with you this morning that you must know if you conclude against the evidence of the facts. If you say that the facts are not true you have to understand that that is a loaded decision. And there are many 
ancillary things that come with that kind of a decision. Uh, You're saying that forgiveness from Jesus isn't true or real. Um, You're saying there's very little hope for life after death. Uh, There's no truth or assurances of salvation. And practically speaking, cancer wins. Practically speaking, age conquers. Practically speaking, grief dominates. Depravity molests. Hate prevails. Death reigns. Be careful of your verdict. Because it has astounding implications for how we see and do life. So you and I are invited to render a verdict of the resurrection on trial. You know, like I said, um, this is a 1 Corinthians 15. If you would, just pull it up for me. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I think it's slide uh, 3 or 4 or so. Yes, there it is. Thank you. This is a creed that Paul quotes early uh, here in the letter to 1 Corinthians, this creed, like I said, it formed within four or five years of the Christ event. And almost all the historians agree that it dates back within five years of the death of Jesus. And again, there's no time for these legendary accretions or telling the story so many times that they actually believe it now. And so now the story's all messed up and convoluted. No, no, this is a, a story that gets a creed that gets started early on. And so what happens is you had outliers who were starting to question the authenticity and the reality of the Christ event. And so they're questioning this and they're skeptics poking holes in the story. And so now the church, the people entrusted with this body of revelation and truth, the witnesses, they come together and say, hey, we've got to go creedal. We have got to establish what it was, who Jesus was, what he came to do, what he did, and, and life post-resurrection we got to go creedal we got to establish this and we got to start saying it over and over and over again because people are coming along the outliers and they're taking shots at this story and so we've got to go creedal and lock this down something that holds and maintains the veracity and the accuracy and the truthfulness of the story and that's what they did and Paul understands this and he quotes this early ancient Christian creed we'll read through all of it Don't worry if it doesn't all make sense the first pass. I'll back up and we'll look at it verse by verse in a moment. But we we read from the top here this morning, for for what I received, Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. The word he uses there is uh, he was a spiritual miscarriage or uh, a, a spiritual stillborn. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without 
effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Verse 11, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Such powerful, succinctly stated words. And what I want you to see, if I could just summarize all that I just shared with you, I want you to understand and see this morning that that Paul doesn't come to this Jesus event. He doesn't come and say, you know, I didn't believe in Jesus because he he had fulfilled me and, and, and made me happy. You know, Jesus wants me to be happy in life and and so he fulfills me and he completes me and 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 I I I wanted to come to Jesus because I just wanted to feel better. That's not how Paul approaches us. See, Paul comes at this. He says in so many words here and other places, in the book of 1 Corinthians and other places, he says, you know what? I didn't want to believe in Jesus. In fact, I didn't believe in Jesus. And honestly, I saw nothing fulfilling about Jesus. He was a threat to everything I had. He was a threat to my righteousness. He was a threat to my worldview. He was a threat to my control of my own life. He was a threat to everything in my life. I didn't want Jesus because he fulfilled me or made me happy. No, I looked at the evidence of the resurrection and it wrecked me. I couldn't get past it. I couldn't get past the facts of this this one who has come and who has resurrected from, he lived, he was crucified, he resurrected from the dead, and now he appears, and he appears to multiple people that I've just read to you. So it's not as if Paul comes to this thing called Christianity and says, I just needed Jesus to make my life better. I'm sad and I want to be happy. He comes to it with, not as a philosopher who says, I found him, and see if you can find him too, and you can be happy, and we'll all just, uh, you know, enjoy our Easter dinners or at least our, our meal times together and hopefully make the best of this thing we call life. That's not how Paul approaches it. That's, he doesn't approach it as a philosopher or self-help guru that says you can do this, this, and this, and now you're going to be happy. He doesn't approach it that way. The way he approaches it, he approaches it as a herald. He says, here's a man called Jesus. Here's the, he's embedded in history. Here's the people. Here's what he did. It's, it's how he worked. It's the things he did, the things he said. It's, it's coming, storming out of the grave on Easter morning. And it's the eyewitness testimony. He says, he, he confronts you with the fact and it will wreck you. And it will destroy us if we... If we consider the facts and we're not honest with the facts, it will totally devastate our life. No, and I would just echo what Paul says and what he implies here this morning. Yes, I want you to be happy. Yes, I want you to be fulfilled. But I want you to deal with the reality of the resurrection. I want it to confront you. I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to be contradicted by it. I want your worldview to be confronted by it. I want you to be uncomfortable with it and and antsy with it. I want you to lose sleep over it. I want you to think about it day and night until you render a verdict. Because that's what Paul is inviting you to do. He's inviting me to do. And when you approach it that way, all of a sudden you realize this is just not a self-help message to make me feel better tomorrow morning. 
It's something on which I can build my life because I don't want cancer to win. I don't want guilt to win. I don't want sin to win and brokenness to win and separation to win. I want a story of victory. And that's what we have in Jesus. It's so beautiful what he's done here in, the, in this incredible event of the life and resurrection of Jesus. You know, if we, if we back up, go back to verse 3 for me, we'll take it from the top. And Casting Crowns has a song that they sing, <clears throat> Glorious Day. The chorus of that song says, Living he loved me, dying he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. One would get the idea that they uh, commandeered those lyrics straight out of 1 Corinthians 15 because that's exactly the chorus of glorious day casting crowns is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is saying, church, Corinthians, all readers of Scripture, all those on the, on the journey of meaning and purpose in life, this Easter stuff didn't just come out of nowhere. It was an ancient creed from within years, a few years of the Christ event. For what I received, verse 3, for what I received. He's not saying I did a lot of study and I'm a very, very bright guy and I'm an insightful man, and I've arrived at this liberating principle of life, this self-help principle of life. He doesn't say it that way. He says, I arrived at the truth. And what he says is, the truth arrived at me, and in me it came to me, and, and I passed it along, and I didn't come up with it on my own. It was entrusted to me. I didn't just discover it. I didn't just create it. I received it, this body of truth. This gigantic mountain of evidence that God has spoken to our world in and through Jesus. You know, for Easter to have impact in your life, you've got to receive it on the screen. He said, I received it. And that's the question you have here this morning when you render your verdict. Have you received Christ? You're going to see some people be baptized in just a few moments and, and they have received Christ this body of truth that's been entrusted to us through Jesus. And so he receives it. And, and not only that, I passed on to you as of first importance. Uh, I'm sharing with you this ancient creed in which that many people feel Paul was baptized with this creed and all people were baptized in the early days of Christianity. I pass it on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Sin is so serious, and it separates us from God, and Christ has to die to pay for it. And what we might dismiss as moral lapse, God calls rebellion because we are alienated from God, and through Christ, that alienation is overcome. And so when we see the resurrection of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus is God's amen on the it is finished of the Son. I'll say it again. The resurrection of Jesus is the Father's amen to the it is finished of the Son. What the Son accomplished in dying for your sin and my sin. 
the Father stamps it, yes, amen and amen and amen to the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus, he says, amen. And the, and the death of Jesus, amen. And the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the Father says, amen, through the resurrection to the it is finished of the Son. You know, it's interesting uh, when we think about sin and guilt and we think about just how that impacts all of our lives. My mind goes to the two rebels that were crucified alongside Jesus. Slide number six, if you would, for me this morning. The two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And then if we go um, to slide number nine, of course, these guys were giving Jesus a hard time. Slide number eight, I'm sorry. Slide number eight, Luke 23, verse 39. We see this conversation. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In verse 43, slide 9, Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. I like what Alistair Begg says. He says that someday he can't wait when he gets to heaven someday and he gets to talk to the criminal thief on the cross who was crucified with Jesus. He's like, one minute, you know, you're cussing the guy out and you're the guy on the middle cross with bitter profanities along with your criminal friend who was on the other side of Jesus and, and the next minute, you're in heaven. I mean, dude, how did you pull that off? And you think about it, how did he pull it off? He didn't go to any Bible studies. He wasn't even baptized. He didn't know anything about church membership, and yet he makes it. He's hanging on the cross, and Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Dude, how did you make it? And it's going to be an interesting discussion I think we all want to have. And I can just imagine it along with Alistair Begg. The guy comes up and says, hey, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? I don't know. You don't know? Well, excuse me for a second. I'm going to go get my supervisor. And so they round up the supervisor. And they set the thief on the cross down who's now in heaven and they have this interview with him. Sir, we've got a few questions for you. And are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith and all the tenets pertaining thereto? And the guy says, I never heard of it. Not only in my life. I have no clue what you're talking about. And the interviewer says, okay, have you ever heard of the doctrine of the inerrancy of the scriptures and how the reliable and authoritative, he says, I don't have a clue. I've never heard of that either. And so finally, in frustration, the heavenly supervisor says to this thief on the cross who's now in heaven, he says, then on what basis are you here in heaven with all of us? How did you get here? And the crucified thief said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only reason. The man on the middle cross said I could come. Men and women, 
That is the only qualification for any of us ever to be able to have a place in heaven. The man on the middle cross said, says, I can come. And if you were to face the inevitable experience of death like the thief on the cross, and some heavenly supervisor recognizes you and asks, hey, what are you doing here? The only reply is the man on the middle cross says, I could come. And you can because of what he did on the cross. You see, if we go back to slide three, the text tells us what I received, I passed on. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures so he could say to people like thieves on the cross and you and to me, I've got a party, you're invited, and I'll take care of the invitation. And Easter is about recognizing this, Paul says, that he, he died, he lived, and he, he died not for his sins, not just for our little innocent mistakes. No, no, he dies for our alienation and our rebellion and our stubbornness and our own waywardness. He dies for that. That's how serious it is. He dies for it. And, and to know and to demonstrate that he, he really did die, he was buried in a tomb. Like the song says, casting crowns, dying, he, living, he loved me, dying, he saved me, buried, he carried my sins far away. And the text says, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared. And see, so we see this creed is like a two-point creed. It's like, so he, he, um, he dies, and then to verify that he's dead, they buried him, and then he raises from the dead, and to verify that he's been raised, there's these multiple appearances. And so if you've got, if you've got an empty tomb, and Jesus is making appearances, if you've got, if he's still in the tomb this morning, if, he's, if, he's, if Jesus is still in the tomb There is no life, right? There is no life. And so when we look at this, uh, it says that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The third day. Just like he said that he would be raised on the third day. If we Slide number 12, if you would, for me. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Matthew states that Jesus would be in the ground three days and three nights. And that's, it. that's interesting because doesn't that make it impossible for Jesus to have been crucified on a Friday and raised on a Sunday as tradition has taught us to believe? From Friday to Sunday is not three days and three nights. It's three days, it's parts of three days, but it's only parts of two nights. That's Friday and that's Saturday, and he raises on Sunday morning. If you see it here on the screen, you know that that's a problem for Matthew's account. What do we do with that? It's been a stumbling block for a lot of people. 
They can't get, they can, can't get to three days and three nights from Friday afternoon crucifixion. So what's going on? And so when we look at this and we know that the Jews understood uh, the, the beginning of a new day was at sunset on the previous day. So, for example, uh, the beginning of a Sabbath, a typical Jewish Sabbath was on Friday evening, 6 o'clock, to Saturday evening, 6 o'clock. That was your Jewish Sabbath. And that's the frame of reference, and that's how they understood a day. And so when we look at this three days and three nights, it's problematic. There are people who struggle with this point in the Gospels where, where Matthew records this. But what some have discovered, and what I'm seeing more and more as I and myself has taken time to analyze this and look at this, there was a very unique set of circumstances at the particular week of Jesus' death and his Passion Week and crucifixion. You know, for the most part, we've been led to believe that the crucifixion happened on a Friday, and that was based on John 19, verse 31. If you would pull up for me, slide number 13. Now, it was the day of preparation. I'll explain what that means in a moment. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. That's a key phrase. A special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. And so we know that the regular weekly Jewish Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday. So church tradition has made the assumption, a huge assumption. Oh, so Jesus was crucified on Friday afternoon, and that's why they needed to get the bodies down before the regular Sabbath. But note carefully John 19. It says a special Sabbath. Well, what is a special Sabbath? Well, we know it's the time of the year when Jesus, uh, his passion takes place. It's the time of the year uh, during the Jewish Passover. And we know that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and he's going to fulfill the Passover festival with his own life and sacrifice. We understand this. And this goes back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, slide number 14. We, we see this in the book of Exodus. The Hebrews are leaving Egypt, and they're going for a wilderness trek to the promised land. Tell the whole community on the screen, verse 3, Exodus 12, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, that is the month of Nisan, which would have been their, their month, the first month on the Hebrew calendar from this day forward, each man, on the screen, each man is to take a lamb. You selected your lamb on this day every year for his family, one for each household. And then we read a few verses later in verse 6 of Exodus 12, take care of, the, of them, that is the lambs, until the 14th day of the month. Now stay with me here, you're going to see it. The 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. That is, late in the afternoon. So lamb selected on Nisan the 10th, according to Exodus 12. The lamb is slain on Nisan the 14th. And that was the pattern for every Passover from that day forward. And then it goes on to say that they were actually to eat the lamb at the Passover meal later that night. So in the Hebrew calendar... The Passover meal, okay, the day ends at sundown, and a new day begins. 
And with that in mind, they slaughtered the lamb during the day on Nisan the 14th and ate it later that night after sundown, which makes it a new day, Nisan the 15th. Now, one more Old Testament passage. I'll show you my point. Uh, Slide number 15, if you would. Leviticus chapter 23. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at the appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Festival of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days, you must eat bread made without yeast. And on the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do, not re- do no regular work. So to review with you, you're like, well, I'm lost. Let me review it. A lamb is selected on Nisan, the month of Nisan, the 10th. It is slaughtered during the day on Nisan, the 14th. It is eaten later on that night, which is the Hebrew calendar, would be Nisan, the 15th, but it's after 6 o'clock or so on Thursday evening, right? And so, and so or Wednesday evening. And so this is a special Sabbath. That day would be a sacred assembly. Here's how, here's how it goes. So the Passover Sabbath or special Sabbath always came on the 15th of the month of Nisan and would therefore naturally fall on different days of the week in different years, just like Christmas does. Christmas does in our day. It falls on different days of the week, but it's always December the 25th. Your birthday falls on different days of the week, but it's always on a specific day, Right? So Christmas, your birthday, and that's the way this special Passover Sabbath worked. It was always observed as a Sabbath. And so what happened during the final week of Jesus' life, the way the 15th of Nisan fell that particular year that Jesus was crucified, there were two Sabbaths back-to-back. Two Sabbaths back-to-back. In the Reconstruction... Jesus would have been crucified on Thursday during the day. Then that's Thursday night. That's Friday night. That's Saturday night. There's your three nights, just like Matthew says in his gospel. And he would have been raised from the dead sometime before dawn on Sunday morning. And slide 16, if you would, for me. Early on the first day of the week, and while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so we reconstruct this. Jesus dies on Thursday afternoon about 3 o'clock. 3 to 6 o'clock or so, that's the first day. It qualifies as the first day, Jewish frame of reference. This period is followed by Thursday night, Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night. That is a total of three days, three nights in that precise order. And in this scheme of things, Jesus could have been risen from the dead at any point after dark on Saturday evening. The Gospels have it right. They have it right. Three days. Three nights, just like Matthew says. And on Sunday afternoon, slide 17, the two people walking on the road to Emmaus were explaining to a risen Jesus what all had happened. And they didn't know it was Jesus at that point. But here's what they said, Luke 24. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. Paul says that he was raised on the third day. 
according to the scriptures. Now one other thing, slide 18. It's kind of interesting. Slide 18, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. What we have in most of our uh, translations, English translations, in the original Greek, Matthew's account of the events of the resurrection morning begins in the end of the Sabbath as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. But here's the problem. The word for Sabbath is plural. And if you pull up uh, slide number 20 for me, I got some of my Greek tools and aids. And what you're going to see is it's a noun, it's genitive, and it's plural. Neuter noun, it's plural. What does that mean? In the end of the, in the, end of the Sabbaths, plural. The end of the Thursday, the special Sabbath, and the normal weekly Sabbath. The end of those two Sabbaths. Then this happens. It began, it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. And so what we have in the Gospels, we have two back-to-back Sabbaths. The special Passover Sabbath, which fell on Thursday evening. The regular Friday Sabbath, which came the next day. There's a special Sabbath. There's a regular Sabbath. They happen back-to-back on consecutive days. And all the tossing and turning and worrying that you worried about all these years. That there's not three nights, like Matthew says. When in fact, the Gospels have it right. There are, there were three nights. And we read in Matthew 27, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so here's how it went down. Slide 23, if you would, for me. The Passover lamb is slaughtered at twilight per the Exodus passage on Thursday evening. All of Israel is slaughtering their lambs. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, dies on the cross for you. He's buried the same evening by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. The women observe where Jesus is buried and buy spices. But as it is now the start of the special Passover Sabbath, that is the Friday Sabbath that began at dusk on Thursday evening, they are unable to anoint the body until Sunday morning. And all day Friday and all day Saturday, the two Sabbaths, and Jesus rises from the dead. Just like the Gospels say, April the 12th, 32 A.D., early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed. Paul says he was raised on the third day. Day. Matthew says three days and three nights, any part of three days and three nights, and that's how we get there. If we go to slide number three, and then he appeared to Cephas. Doesn't say that Peter, Aramaic Cephas, doesn't say that he saw him first, the women saw him first, but he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve. He's saying, if you don't believe Peter, if you've got problems with Peter, here's the 12. And then all of them together can verify the life and death and resurrection and appearance of Jesus. Verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than 
500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He's saying that, you know what, this is not hallucination stuff. There's whole groups of people who saw him, who saw him at the same time. And in fact, most of them, 200, at least 251 of them are still alive. And you can go talk to them right down the road here. Go talk to them. And they're maintaining their story 20 years after the fact. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother and author of the book of James. And then to all the apostles, slide for all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I was a spiritual stillbirth or miscarriage. wasn't part of this original Jesus group. I was kind of a spiritual freak by comparison. I was a spiritual miscarriage, and yet he appeared to me. The empty tomb was a fact because if the empty tomb was a fact, but there were no resurrection appearances, Jesus' body would have appeared to be stolen, and the crucifixion and the empty tomb would have been a puzzle and a tragedy. But if the resurrection appearances had occurred without the empty tomb, that would have been construed as visions and hallucinations. But instead, we have both an empty tomb and we have several post-resurrection appearances. And the rest of this paragraph in 1 Corinthians 15, after establishing these creedal points of fact and doctrine and belief, crucial, The rest of the paragraph is how Paul lives out this resurrection life. And we can live it out too. And we see in verse 9 on the screen that for I am the least of the apostles, he says, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul says, I I surrendered my pride, in other words. When you have Easter life surging through your life and your veins you you surrender your pride you surrender to the fact of the resurrection yeah you're unworthy and 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 yes uh we tend to want to take pride in who we are and what our identity is and where we're from and we have this inflated inflated view of our significance paul says i gave that up when i came to christ and i recognized the new identity he was stamping on my life i exhibited no pride i surrendered I surrendered to this truth of Jesus. Secondly, Paul says, another evidence of Easter life is I have an appreciation for grace. But by the grace of God, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you recognize it's with Christ and in Christ that you are what you are? Do you attribute your success to his grace? So Easter life surrenders our pride. Easter life has an appreciation and gratitude for grace. Easter life makes a humble admission of our accomplishments. Verse 10, we see it. Paul doesn't deny that he had accomplishments. He just said, you know what? I'm just going to do this for the glory of God. And my record is open to all. and, And it's all for his glory that I've done what I've done. And finally, Paul says, and he emphasizes an honest appreciation for others in verse 11. He's a right, he writes about how he labored even more than all of them. And he never, he stopped 
concerning himself with who got the credit in his life. He did it all for the glory of God, and that's Easter life. That's what Easter life looks like when you base your life on the fact and the reliability of the resurrection. And so here's where we find ourselves here this morning. Back to slide number two. Resurrection on trial. What will your verdict be? What will it be? And if it's true, I'm going to, and you believe that it's true, I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning to come forward in communion and express that belief through sharing at the Lord's table. And if our ushers would come forward, our elders would come forward and man the tables, I'll give you an opportunity to publicly declare the verdict of the resurrection that's been on trial maybe in your life. Or maybe this morning you've had intellectual challenges and hang-ups to the Bible and how the Bible maybe has said things about Easter. This morning, I've clarified that for you. The Bible has it right. Maybe you've got other issues with the Bible. Maybe you've got other issues with maybe how God is working in your life. Maybe you feel God hasn't got something right. And it's time to surrender that this morning. To surrender your pride and just say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's only by His grace. So this morning, you have an opportunity to render a verdict. And so when you come up and just come with others, and I would just encourage all of you, um, just come to your to your center row. So this side, just come to this aisle. The middle sections come to the center aisle. The far section over here, come to this aisle. And then once you take communion, just file back along the walls. And that'll kind of keep us flowing forward this morning. But when you take that bread and that juice of communion, just know that you're assimilating into your life the power of this Savior, this risen Savior. And he wants to be released in power and great authority And he'll do that today if you'll just invite him in. The resurrection on trial, what will your verdict be? I'll pray for the group. Maybe start the song. I'll pray for the group, and then our ushers will release you. Father, thank you.